And truly, Lord Jesus, we'll never know how much it cost for our sin to be taken to the cross. And as we come to communion now, as we come to your table, which you said we do in remembrance of you, we pray that you would show us more and more of the riches of what you've established for us. In Jesus' name, amen. As we mentioned earlier, we want you to be preparing for a time of communion together. So with the bread and with the cup, I want to read from Romans chapter 5. One verse in verse 12 and then from verse 15 to 17. I'm going to lead us in prayer, but I'm actually pre-recording this. So you won't see me uh, eat the bread and drink the cup. Why? Because I want to do it with you. I want to do it at the same time as you. So on Sunday morning, I'll be ready with the bread and with the cup. And together, we'll be doing this together. So as we prepare now, we turn to Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. It says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world... Through one man, speaking of Adam, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. But there's a gift, and the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of that one man Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. You see, judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, namely Adam, Death reigned through that one man. Death took charge. Death had its way. Death's will was done. Death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace, we receive an abundant provision of grace, and the gift of righteousness, how much more will we reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus has undone sin. Jesus has undone death. And as we come to this table, we want to recognize his work on our behalf. We start by looking at him. But we also take time at this table to look at our own hearts. You see, we don't want to be careless. We want to bring ourselves to God and make sure that there's nothing that we've left in the way. So maybe you just want to take a moment and ask God if there's anything that you need to deal with as we come to this table. This table is a place of invitation for those who know and love him and have established within themselves by the grace of God, by the gift of that righteousness, by the justification that comes from Jesus Christ. 
the recognition of the access they have to the life of God. And so, Father, we bring to you that which we need to deal with. We just search our hearts. We say, Holy Spirit, show us if there's anything we need to clear out the way. Anything that's robbed us. Anything that's been broken and damaged. Especially in this last week or two. Thank you that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgive our sin, cleanse us. And so we receive that now. So in the name of Jesus, Father God, we thank you for the offering our Lord Jesus made. When on that cross he offered his body for us, one man for all humankind. And as we eat and drink together, we remember him. And so let's eat this one body, making many alive. Let's take the cup, the cup which is the symbol of his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Father, we thank you that Jesus did not spare himself. He laid down his life like a good shepherd for the sheep. We thank you for his blood the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. So drink, remember him, and be grateful. And even now, as we come to your word, Lord, quickened by, as you said, almost like feeding on you in that act of faith. We ask you to feed us even more as we turn to your word. Amen. So we're picking up for our reading this morning several short readings from the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. And uh, we want to look at a theme that we see there, the theme of the Kingdom of God. We want to take some time. We continue in our series, which is that uh, we want to walk as Jesus did. We've looked at the rhythms of life. And now we come to the honesty of not yet and the faith for more. This is part of what we want to learn in order to be the apprentices of Jesus as we explore both the theology and the practice of discipleship. So one of the first scriptures is in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, 
where we read that as Jesus begins his ministry, it says from that time on, Jesus began to preach. He began to proclaim a message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And I want to compare that then with Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10, which is well known inside the Sermon on the Mount as what we call the Lord's Prayer or the Kingdom Prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, in which we are taught to pray, Your kingdom come, as we look to our Father in heaven and honor the sacredness of His name, we pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I want you to see attention here. I want you to see that there is a declaration from Jesus that the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is breaking in, and yet we are to pray, your kingdom come. How can it be that the kingdom is arriving or is here, and at the same time, how can it be that we're still praying for the kingdom to come? And when we look at this term, and it's a, it's a Greek term, uh, it's an idiom, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What we, what we need to do is understand it means that, and there's different translations, many just in the English just say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they feel that there's enough understanding to turn it into an English idiom. Although, when I look at the theology that abounds around what this means, it's very... We certainly haven't worked out what it means to say that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Some translations say the kingdom of heaven has come near. Other translations simply describe it as the kingdom of heaven has arrived. The kingdom of heaven is here. And there definitely is a sense in which that is the meaning of at hand. At hand could describe a time like a new season. So when a harvest was at hand, it meant the harvest was already beginning. It wasn't fully harvested. It wasn't already in the storehouse, but the work of harvesting was beginning. So to say a harvest was at hand meant that it was, it was beginning, but not yet fully complete. Um, and hand also could describe a location, so not just time. And so when Jesus was approaching and entering Jerusalem, but he's just, a, he's just in the act of entering, it describes Jesus as being at hand to Jerusalem. It's beginning, but he has not yet reached, as it were, the final destination. He's still on the journey into Jerusalem. So there's this idea of proximity of something having arrived. Jesus was at Jerusalem, but he still, there was still some way to go. And, and so Jesus comes and he starts preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change your life, repent. God's kingdom is here. Now make no mistake, Jesus believed that the kingdom was present in him, breaking in through him. And he says, for example, in Matthew chapter 12, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. And Jesus clearly had just driven out a demon. So he's be he believes the kingdom has come in the actions that he took in healing the sick, driving out demons. 
And, and so he's saying, it's time to reconsider your life. It's time to think deeply because the kingdom is here. Now, this whole topic of the kingdom, we call it eschatology, does take some thinking through. There's, there's an expectancy and yet there is also a delay. God is coming. God is coming back. God is putting things right. But at the same time, we need to understand in this kingdom that we have a part to play. One of the pictures I like about this word at hand is that in a sense, it's within your reach. It's within your grasp. It's close enough to touch it. And so when we begin to understand how close at hand is, we begin to feel some of the responsibility because it's something we're called to make a change so that we can see something of God's kingdom. Now, at the same time as being so close, Jesus taught, for example, in Matthew chapter 13, that the kingdom can be planted like a seed. It, he describes it as a mustard seed. He describes it which, which starts small and grows. So the, the kingdom, a seed can be here, and yet it can grow. This, and, and yeast expands. By the time you get to the end of the life of Jesus, for example, in Matthew 25, most of those parables are speaking about a delay. And so the virgins have to wait for the king and the servants have to wait for their master. And there is a judgment that is to come. So how are we to understand this tension between something that seems to be right here and something that we are still waiting for? You see, we need to understand that Jesus's message was not just about the kingdom of God. Jesus's message was fundamentally this, that the kingdom of God is at hand. So we need to get our heads around what is so accessible? What is it that we can take hold of? This is not once upon a time in a kingdom far, far away. The kingdom of God's love and his power is available, is accessible right here, right now. And there's a response that comes from those of us who need to follow him. And so... If we look back right to our created design in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 to 28, we read this. God said, let's make humankind in our image, in our likeness. And then he states our purpose so that they may rule. They're going to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over the livestock, the wild animals, all the creatures that move along the ground. So God made a in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And then God said to them, he blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now that's not a kind of, this is a very creation affirming thing. It's, it's not subjected in a negative kind of way. But what I want you to do, and he repeats the command, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and every living creature that moves on the ground. So right from the beginning of time, God intended for his will on earth to be done through willing human beings. This means that the kingdom has been delegated to us. The kingdom is not mechanical. 
God's will is not being rolled out regardless of what's going on. I'm going to come back to that. But we need to understand, absolutely essential to understanding the kingdom, and God has not changed his mind, that his will on earth is to be done by people with bodies who are willing to do his will. And so we read, for example, in Hebrews chapter 10, from verse 5 to 7, Therefore, when Messiah, Christ, came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire. But notice this, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. And so here we find Jesus being the prototype, this one man, as we read before communion, who's, who's come in his body as a human being to do the will of God. God is still looking for people with bodies willing to do his will. Those are the agents of the kingdom. The kingdom is not random, and the kingdom involves our participation. The way you could describe it is that it is both certain in the sense that there is no mistaking at the end of the day who's going to be uh, and who governs the world god is king and we talk of his sovereignty but his sovereignty does not mean that we deny something else in this picture that the kingdom is both certain and contingent in other words that it depends on our response as well and when we are longing and praying for the kingdom to come, we are praying that our response will be that of willing agents for the kingdom. And that other people will begin to respond in ways that really surrender their bodies, surrender themselves, the fullness of their being. But obviously it works out in action to do the will of God. And when we are doing the will of God, heart, soul, mind, body, spirit, God has agency for the kingdom. God is not going to send the kingdom apart from human beings. That is why Romans 5 then describes that just as death reigned, so too not just God reigns, but that those to whom Jesus has given life, those he has justified, will reign in life. In other words, the kingdom purpose of God is once again restored. And so when we receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness, Romans 5 verse 17, we reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to ask Stephen, who's uh, producing this for us, to drop in a, a PowerPoint. You see, when we be talking about the kingdom and the kingdom coming, um, the Bible talks about this age um, in Galatians chapter 3, this present evil age. And in Ephesians chapter 1, it talks, for example, about the age to come. And, and in between these two ages, if you look at the Old Testament expectation, is the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord will move us, as it were, from this age, or the Old Testament expectation, the prophetic expectation, they would be moved from their age into the age to come. And the day of the Lord was, was something that was difficult for them to interpret. Um, because 
they almost got mixed messages. The day of the Lord seemed to be a day of judgment, and yet it was a day of grace. It seemed to be a day of great victory, and yet it often spoke of deep suffering and struggle. Now, being faithful to the Holy Spirit, they didn't, as it were, change what he said. They didn't even necessarily always understand what he said, but they faithfully reported what he said. But one of the things that even they began to recognize is that the kingdom to come was going to be a better kingdom. So if we could have the next slide, we see that this age is improved. It's upgraded. And the age to come is a vastly better age. It's an age of justice. It's an age of, of righteousness. It's an age where there will be peace, where there will be prosperity, where poverty will be broken, where people don't train for conflict and war anymore. And it's a, it's a completely different kind of age. It's a much better age because it's a much better kingdom. So you have these two kingdoms described by two ages. But then when Jesus breaks in, he begins to explain that what we have and Paul uses the same language as well. He talks about this present evil age and then the age to come. But the Bible makes it clear that the age to come has already begun. The kingdom is at hand. And so what we have, and we understand this in the language of kingdom, it's possible to have two kingdoms conflicting for the same territory. And so we have two kingdoms in conflict seeking to govern the same territory. The one is described as this present evil age, and it seeks to control and define the age we're in. The other is the, the power of the age to come, the glory of the age to come, the justice, the mercy, the compassion. And it is a much better kingdom. Now here's the interesting thing in our secular society, is that when people get a glimpse through Jesus, maybe they've been living in a pre-Christian society, maybe they've been living in a space where um, there was fatalism or, or a blame culture or paganism, and you're always trying to guess which God you need to appease. When they discover the meaning and purpose, and in a sense, the definition of history that is expressed to them through, G through Scripture, that God has created this world with purpose and with design and intent, the Christian vision of a new kingdom overwhelmingly draws people to that kingdom. And so we see cultures moving quite quickly when they they out of, as it were, a pre-Christian phase into a Christian phase. But here's what quickly happens. We fall in love with the kingdom more than we fall in love with the king. And so society in post-Christian society, which a lot of the West, for example, is, and the other parts of the world that could also be seen as this way, have taken the vision of a kingdom. They have taken the vision of the value of human beings, all human beings. And, and no matter your age, your gender, etc., they've taken the value of human beings as defined by the kingdom of God. They've taken the justice of the kingdom of God. They've taken the compassion of the kingdom of God. They've taken the sense of honor of the kingdom of God. But here's the thing. They want the kingdom, but they don't want a king. And so in this middle point is the crucial person of Jesus, 
who moves us from a pre-Christian chaotic world. But you cannot have the kingdom unless you have the king. Now, ironically, before, and maybe there's someone who doesn't, you know, kind of would describe themselves as, yes, I'm signing for the kingdom. I'm not sure I want the king. Let me be honest about how church people sometimes behave. And I've got to include myself in this. We want the king, but we're not so sure we want his kingdom. We're not sure, so sure that we want to do everything to make sure that our world is defined by mercy and justice. Because that can be a costly world to us. We're not so sure that, that we want a world in which resources are equally shared because human beings are equally valued by God. And so we sometimes in the church want the king without his kingdom. We need to realize that in both cases, what we have are coexisting kingdoms that are in conflict. Next, just to point this out then, in Jesus, the kingdom is inaugurated. It's the, in his first coming, as it were. And so in his birth, through the fullness of his life and everything about his life that reveals how the kingdom comes on earth through a willing human being, equipped and empowered by the Holy Spirit, and then offering himself on our behalf and inaugurating the kingdom through his death and resurrection, his ascension into heaven, where he now reigns on our behalf and invites us to rule and reign with him from that heavenly perspective. That, as it were, for Christians, is the end of the old age. And we read that if anyone is in Christ, look, the new creation has come. 2 Corinthians chapter, seven, uh, chapter 5 and verse 17. And so the kingdom is inaugurated. It's at hand. It's here now. It's available. You can reach out. You can touch it. You can receive it. But the kingdom is not yet consummated. There is this element of waiting, of longing, of hoping. And so we live between these lines of kingdoms that are in conflict between this age and the age to come. Now, the clash of these kingdoms causes tension for us. I've pointed out some, but let me use a phrase now, and, and, and we do know it, but it's so important in the context of this course. We have to recognize that the kingdom is both now and not yet. In eschatology, there are two massive schools of thought as to how to interpret the Bible. And essentially, one, which is called premillennialism, emphasizes the fact that the kingdom is not yet, and that the glorious kingdom that we are waiting for, and in fact, almost everything about it, and every kingdom benefit, whether this is healing or freedom or breakthrough, or the church having a prevailing influence on the world, being salt and light. Well, that's only going to happen one day. We are living pre-millennium, pre the, 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 and they use the word from Revelations chapter 20, the, the rule of, of, of Christ and the rule of his people. Um, and, and, and so that word is a thousand years. Now, that thousand years is very unlikely, in fact, extremely unlikely in a book so rich with symbolism to describe a literal thousand years. It describes an extended period. 
And so people who emphasize not yet are saying, as it were, and, and you know, for centuries, we were either lumped essentially as pre-mill or post-mill. And the post-millennium is saying, no, 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 it's not all, don't wait for the good stuff. The kingdom is now. And so, as it were, we have, a, and, and, it, and the problem is in saying no, instead of and. We have to recognize in Jesus, the kingdom has come. But we have to agree that the kingdom has not fully come. And so it's not whether we are pre or post mill. The question is whether we can live with the tension that this causes. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to go and push some hot buttons, especially pastoral ones, ones that we have to wrestle with. And especially during this time when we're in lockdown or we're having to work in essential services, when, when we are seeing so much suffering around us, how can it be that the kingdom is now? How can we be part of the kingdom? We see so much of the kingdoms not yet. And here's one of the critical things we will discover. That the way we partner to see with God, to see the now of the kingdom, is through faith. But I don't want to get away uh, from this week's clarity. The kingdom is now and not yet. It's not all. It's now. The kingdom is available. We can reach it. We can touch it. We can participate in it. We can experience its glory and power. But eye has not seen and ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. There's parts of the kingdom that are just completely not yet. And so we live not emphasizing one instead of the other, not even minimizing the two. We live by stating both as forcefully as we possibly can, because both are biblical truths. And the second thing is that the kingdom is certain. You got to know that the not yet is on its way and that there is absolutely no way that it is uncertain. The other thing we can say, and this was in Jesus, in those words, repent. In other words, there was a response required. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The, the certainty of the kingdom is declared in that message. But there is a contingency. In other words, the outcomes of the kingdom in our lives depend on our response. And so Jesus' first Matthew parable, recorded in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower, its meaning of those different soil types in where the seed lands is very clear that the outcomes of the kingdom are contingent. They depend on how I respond. And so let's be very clear. This kingdom is universally certain. The, the sovereignty of God is not at risk. He is completely king and lord of all the earth. King of kings and lord of lords. But at the same time, we are called and confronted to adjust our lives to his call. Saying that it's certain doesn't mean that it's automatic. It's not mechanical. It is certain. But I am confronted with whether I will repent. Whether 
I will recognize the kingdom and whether I will find the faith to reposition my life so that that which is accessible will now become evident through me. And we're going to take a lot more time exploring and opening the glory and the power of a kingdom that is both now and not yet. How do we live with that tension? And a kingdom that is both certain and yet contingent. And let me just finish there. When I began to realize that God had purposed me to be someone who does his will on earth in his name, I realized a response was required. I realized I was living as part of another dominion, another kingdom. I thought I was living for myself, but I was simply living according to the present age. And the spirit of this age was defining me. Living for myself, individualism, living for money, thinking one day my goal in life is to be as rich as I possibly can be. And recognizing that there's this new spirit the spirit of the age to come, the one who wants to reach into my life and make me new and make me someone who literally by faith begins to carry and release the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. We, you and me, we are called to be agents of the kingdom. It's not mechanical. It's not automatic. Your decision matters. So I want to ask you, what will it be? Do you want a kingdom, all the benefits we've described, of a new world, but not a king? Isn't it time to recognize you only get kingdoms when you get his name is Jesus. And equally, church, we cannot call ourselves subjects of a king whose kingdom we do not seek. Jesus would say in Matthew 6 verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You'll get everything else too. We can't just seek the king. We must seek his kingdom and everything that's in that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the glory that you have created us for. Today, you're inviting us into that place to reposition our lives, to make all the changes that are needed because a king is proclaiming a kingdom among us. Your word makes this message as fresh today as it was when you first stepped out in Galilee to begin your preaching. 
so we ask of you, Lord Jesus, reposition us. Remind us of the core. Lord, forgive us for the times we've possibly seen this as mechanical and automatic. What will be, will be. No. Your kingdom is certain, but in our lives, what will be, will be decided by our response to the king and his kingdom. as it is in heaven.